0: Hi there everybody welcome to another episode of the cloud-based mayhem a couple things of housekeeping before we get into this one the first is as some of you know I tested positive for COVID about a week and a half ago don't know how I got it I've been training pretty hard for the X helps and have been spending some time in the gym so that's one maybe likely spot but I have been very fastidious about washing my hands and wearing a mask from the beginning back from March with this whole thing so the point here is, is just to stay vigilant. I got it a few days before the president did, and we've all seen the fallout from that. I think more than 30 people in that Rose Garden deal that they had tested positive, which in one day was more than uh, Australia, New Zealand, Vietnam, Taiwan, and South Korea combined. So. They say more than 90% of the U.S. has still not been exposed. And I can tell you this thing is, is uh, it's no joke. And, it, you know, you, you also have to go through the kind of the emotional side. It's pretty scary. It's, um, you feel kind of like an outcast. There's the shame side of it. And, you know, I'm obviously pretty healthy, training pretty hard for the X alps And, you know, it took my feet out from under me for sure. So, be careful be fastidious i think we're in for a long haul here doesn't seem like there's any miracle around the corner and uh certainly be much better to not get it if you can so be careful everybody the second bit of housekeeping is i know you don't come to this show for politics but i think it's my show I say what i want and we've got a big election coming up i know many of you listening are not americans you won't be voting in this election but this election is A big one for this country and for the world, and there is certainly a lot on the ballot. And I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, but you know, there's there's a lot there's a lot coming down to the wire on this one. And we've just had four pretty chaotic years. And if you're not too excited about the status quo, and you're worried about things like biodiversity and nature and climate change and education and Morality, racial justice, income inequality, the American dream, snow, and I don't think it's too much to to say even our future is on the ballot this year, not just for the president, but for all the down-ballot races that are very, very important. So. Please make a plan to vote. They say if you have a plan, you're 20% more likely to vote. It's less than a month away. Voting is uh, already happening in many parts of the country, early voting. And if you need some help with registration or just make sure you're registered, there's also, you know, there's a lot of uh, vote rules and suppression and all kinds of stuff going on to keep people from voting. So make sure you're, you're eligible and you're registered Go to patagonia.com forward slash elections for all kinds of resources on that and make a plan either through absentee or on the day or drop off ballots, Um, mail in, make a plan and make it happen. A lot of people have died eh, here and around the world for the right to vote. It is our civic duty. We got to do it. That's how our representatives listen and please, this year, please vote. Beg your grandma. Uh, beg the kids that don't think it matters, get your friends to go, get a big party to go, wear your masks, and and go vote. And I'll I'll leave you with this quote from Neil deGrasse Tyson before you go to the polls. He said, the greatest thing about science is it's true whether you believe in it or not. So science is also on the ballot this year. Let's go to the polls and vote. Thank you. This conversation is with Steve Ham, a British pilot who's been in the game since the very, very beginning and was a real passionate hang glider, had a bunch of accidents and transitioned into paragliding, has run and been a meet director and been involved in more than 60 competitions, including really big comps like the Worlds and the Europeans and a bunch of World Cups. He was really the, the person who put Pedra Hida in Spain on the... Competition map and has over the years been on the British team a number of times, has held a number of records both in the UK and in Spain, and just fascinating. Most of you probably know him more recently by his incredible illustrations. He had a pretty bad accident after the 2000, the really famous 2011 comp and Peter Heda with all the tragedy which we go into in depth in this in this conversation but he had his own personal accident after that that uh, really screwed up his arm and uh, still has pretty limited mobility and movement in that arm and became an illustrator after that that was something he could do with that arm so you know him for his amazing illustrations he illustrated all the Kiwi's uh, great articles about his road to macedonia and his world's attempt that he did in cross country magazine and then he illustrated my coronavirus uh column back in xc mag this spring which was really fun and he did one of the alaska expedition as well so uh he's done a bunch of stuff for me and we've never met so i really wanted to get him on the show and talk about peter heda what happened there uh that the writing was for many people was really on the wall this was right after the uh, invention of the two-liners and this was when the r11 came out and jen had a similar two-liner wing and a lot of pilots pretty excited about flying it but didn't have the skills to do so so that world's event uh, day two in peterheda went really pear-shaped and uh, two fatal accidents and several other reserves and The fallout from that really changed paragliding as we know it. That ended the open class, uh, instigated the CCC class. There was all kinds of interesting things that happened with the serial class after that. And so, yeah, a lot of fallout, a lot of changes. That was Steve's last, last competition that he ran. He has been a meet director since. But anyway, some great stories. It takes us a while to warm up in this one, but... Uh, near the end, he talks about a bunch of great stories. So please stick with it uh, to the end and some great history here and great advice. And I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you did too. Cheers. Steve, I've been really excited to have you on the show. Ed reached out months and months ago after you did the the awesome illustrations for the coronavirus uh, article that I did for the magazine for my column. And I've, you know, I, I I'm very protective of my uh, Australia PWC helmet bag that's got your awesome illustrations all over it. I've been, I'd love to meet you in in person someday. You've been at this for. An awfully long time. I actually didn't know how long until you sent me that great email yesterday with a bunch of your history with hang gliding. You've been at this from the very beginning, and I really want to get into all that. But I thought we might a a very interesting point in your history and in a history in the history of the sport might be to ping off right with Peter Hita in 2011. You were the meet director there at that Worlds uh, that was so tragic and really really changed the dynamic of the, of the sport. And there was a lot of fallout from that. And I just thought to rope people in, you know, obviously the pilots that listen to the show that have been at this game for an awful long time, remember indelibly the 2011 event, but many of the people that are new to the sport, maybe not so much. So let's start with, with 2011, your role there. And you, you, we, as we talked about a little bit before we started recording here, you kind of, well, many of you thought the writing was on the wall there before that even started.
1: Um, yes, we did. Well, I, we, we all suspected there might be a possible problem because um, running up in the spring before the event, the, the event is in July, which is the sort of peak of the conditions here in Hater, um, and people have been starting flying the, the new gliders. And the year before, the I-10 had been out and been very successful. Um, but during that spring, some of the newer gliders were coming out. And of course, the, P- the CIBL had changed the ruling on gliders for um, open class. And um, all the glider, mo- most of the gliders, which had been flown the previous season, the three liners, ha- were no, lo- no longer uh, certified under the new rules. So we had the situation where many pilots, although they were happy on their previous year's three-liner comp glider, they couldn't actually fly them because the manufacturer didn't want to spend the money to do the tests once again because, of course, many of them had new gliders out and they wanted to sell the new gliders. So a lot of pilots would come to the event with new gliders which hadn't been flown much, although the new rule was they had to have them at least 30 days before the competition uh, happened. But, you know, what were the possible bad weather. And you know, a lot of pilots turned up with very little airtime. And we also started hearing stories of, you know, p- people saying these guys these are just fantastic. They're, they're just really, uh, they, you can't deflate them. But when they go, they go. Mm-hmm. And um, then the energy was so, so vast, and people couldn't deal with what was happening to them. So everyone was just even with minor deflations, people were throwing their reserves. So we started to get a lot of reserves being thrown in the early part of the season. And, you know, even some big names, you know, so, uh, Alex Hoffer, who was the um, European champion back in the early 2000s, where he he had an accident, broke his back. And, you know, other important people, you know, not just, you know, people sort of mid-ranking pilots, but the good pilots. So there was a, a lot of concern really coming in. And um, when the when all the pilots turned up, you know, uh, I was obviously concerned. I spoke to Russell Ogden, who's a good friend for many years, and of course, he works with ozone and very knowledgeable on all these aspects and been involved in testing the pilots. And I did ask him, you know, Could you please perhaps do a, a, a briefing on the first day with in front of all the pilots, the obligatory safety briefing that we were to do, to tell them how to actually find these pilots and, uh, you know, more importantly, how to recover them? And of course, you know, Russell being what he is, it was very, well, you know, I don't want to teach, it's like teaching granny to suck eggs, you know, it's not, you know, these are all in good pilots, they should know, but, you know, I'll, I'll tell them anyway. And of course, he stood up and went through this, lots of hand gestures, you know, this and the other, and, you know, I was not looking at him, I was looking at the pilots, and a lot of them had, you know, they were a gog, really, you know, what, you know, we have to do that? What's a what's back flying? What's all this? What's all the other? And uh, you know, the, the story was that the gliders only needed a load test and they needed a video of, a, of the test pilot recovering from those events. But of course, it didn't always have to recover. We just had to have the video of recovering on three or four occasions apparently. And I asked Russell, you know, what, what, what are we gonna do? And he said, well, we're hoping for the best, hoping for the best. <laughs> so we went into this yeah. event hoping for the best for all the pilots, but that's uh, it was a pretty scary scenario. Um, are the majority the
0: of the we had, Steve, are the majority of the pilots? Was this the R10?
1: No, this is the R11, the R10 okay. had been out the year before. So, this is the R11, and you know, of course, Jin and a num- number of other manufacturers they also had their versions of two liners. Mm. Um, but you know, the key guys with the boomerang and the, and the R11. Mm. And on the first day, we had no incidents. So, Peterator is, um, is recognized for its you know, convergence flying. So, you get very strong convergence lines over flatlands, and you do a huge tasks here quite easily. Um, and the first day was an excellent day. We had a, a repeat of a task we did way back in 1995 at one of the early PWCs we did here. And that was like a world at that time, back in 95. You know, gliders. Just didn't fly very far, you know. 19, they were sort of very much sort of fishbowl tasks in the PWC. Uh, when I announced this task of a 175-kilometer goal task, you know, people said, "Dad, it's impossible." I remember Richard Gallon coming up to me and saying, "You're crazy. It's impossible." And what for Richard, it was because he bombed out on the way. But we actually got, I think, about 60, 70 of the pilots, a good part of the field, to the goal, nice. and um, well, some other. Curious things are connected with that. But you know, moving on back to the other, the other uh, this task, uh, successful tasks, no problems, everyone got there. Um, there was huge repercussions though um, the next morning because on that, uh, in Peter Aida we, for the first 65K you can fly as high as you like. And it was a day with perhaps 3,500, 4,000 meters. And unfortunately after 65 kilometers, then the airspace limit drops down to uh, 3,000 meters for the you know, mo- majority of the second part of the flight. And although after Russell did his talk, I uh, did a very long explanation of the airspace you know, with audio visuals. Um, a lot of people bust the airspace. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was, that was a big discussion on the next morning. In fact, you know, I think of those 60 people who um, made gold, no, I think actually no, on, no, 60 people made it in 1995. But I think it was 120 out of the field of 150 made the gold. And then I think about 25 third of those, we had to can them. And so I think I was, I was rung up at three o'clock in the morning by the Mexican team saying, Que pasa, qué get Because of course we deleted the points for the whole of the Mexican team. So they weren't very happy. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that was you know, one well, the, the problem you know, going into day two. And then of course on day two, um, we had to rain back. We had another fantastic, really nice forecast with high base but we don't want to go into that airspace. So we did a relatively short task uh, just to have it, which is like 65 k's with a few, a little bit of flying around the valley beforehand. And on that task, that's when we had the two accidents. Now, this is a, it was the day with not strong winds, you know, very, a day a little bit similar to the day before, but it was more of a blue day, uh, perhaps a little bit stronger, a little bit more dry, a little bit more, a little more rough. But the sort of tasks, the sort of conditions that we have here throughout the summer. You know, I'm usually guiding guys on B-class gliders, C-class gliders, and it's the sort of the milk run we do, and flight to and it's 55, 60 k's, and um, it's no big deal. But of course, for people flying these gliders, which were a little bit twitchy, a little bit more tricky to control back in, in those days, then it became very problematic. Of course, we had the, the two fatal accidents with Italo and Francisco. And also, just getting into goal, just trying to lose height over goal, we had three other people throw their shoes you know, just trying to lose height over goal. Um, you know, people were having, well, I don't, don't know what extent of the deflation they had, but, you know, people were throwing their guy, their reserves quickly because they knew they wouldn't be able to get out of um, those those problems.
0: Mm.
1: And then, of course, you know, with, with the two uh, fatalities, you know, one of them, uh, from Atletico Vargas, he was it was uh, before the Stargate, very benign conditions coming back from a, a pre-Stargate turn point, and um, I think uh, there was a German pilot one t- who flew through the same air almost just ahead of him, relatively smooth. And unfortunately, he, uh, what happened with uh, from Francisco Vargas, he had a, uh, an incident and he ended up being in a full store and trying to hold the store. But at the last minute, I think from I think from witnesses, the glider tried to recover from you know He must have let up a little bit and it sort of swung him into the air. And he was essentially in you know, a uh, Killed straight away. We had a pilot landing near him and uh, he thought he was, um, he he probably died at that moment. And the other incident, the other case was uh, with Aitel from uh, Chile, where he was actually probably on the final glide to goal alongside a friend of his. And I think they were 2,800 meters just on a glide and he took a hit. And of course, the glider went into a very, very quick uh, spiral dive. And this later became the reason why we now had to carry two parachutes in category one competitions because it appeared that he got one arm trapped. Um, so he couldn't, you know, his throwing mm-hmm. hand, so he wasn't able to access the chute. And then, you know, so we, he sparred down from 2000 down to the ground and uh, probably killed instantly once again. And of course, with these two fatalities, well, then of course the whole. Panorama of category one competitions changed, as you probably know, know, for quite for many years. and Of course, even though it was a world class, even though it was a world championship, uh, we didn't actually have you know a lot of media going into the event. But of course, after the accidents, and we had just about every radio and TV company in Spain hovering around and uh, trying to report on the event, and of course. After the CIVL uh, after a day or two of deliberation and we decided to uh, cancel the rest of the competition. We had flown enough tasks for it to be validated. And and then that was essentially a banning of the open class glider for a number of years until the competition class was sorted out.
0: What, what became the CCC class? That took a couple of years, didn't it, as I remember. it,
1: it, it took it took some time you know. well, after this, you know, this tragic event, of course it hit me emotionally in a terrible way, as it probably did Calvo, who's my uh, safety director and many people here now that was the end, for me that was the end of uh, running competitions. And it was going to be uh, my last event. You know we'd run you know, perhaps sort of 60, 70 international events since the early 90s and um yeah it was just just too much really to comprehend you know the, it just didn't seem worth going on you know doing more events you know I, I was, as time went on of course you know time heals all etc cetera, etc cetera, and um but i really kind of moved away from you know following events and taking too much interest in what was happening as far as competition uh, design and development went for the next for a few years after that so i don't know too much about all the ins and outs of the the subsequent development of the cc uh, competition class but i do know there are a lot of people who really love their gliders the uh, the r11 for example and, and there are people that we had a belgian pilot came out quite recently you know he's still got his which <laughs> he if mm. he, he, he brought another second hand one when that wore out so many people love those gliders. And of course, in the right hands, they were exceptional gliders. You know, maybe people will say they were almost possibly more performant than some of the guys we have today. I don't know, because I don't fly modern competition gliders at the moment. Uh, but it certainly caused a lot of problems, you know, internationally for the events. Um, you know, everyone's had to let them fly serial class and then of course the serial class you know we'd been through this whole serial class many years before in 1998 and unfortunately we did, it was very much reliving exactly the same scenario for me it's 1998 which is my it was the first category of one event that we organized here on peter Rato. we'd had previously some very very successful pwc and internet um national events you know, we've done the Swedish nationals and the Nordics, the British many times, Spanish nationals of course. And we did these three PWCs and the pilots, you know, on discovering Peter Ato, the merits, the, the, especially the European pilots. Um, cause before about 1984, the, the, most of the PwC tasks were in Europe and they were very much sort of fishbowl tasks, you know, 40, 50 Ks and occasionally 60. And then here in 95, we were suddenly doing these huge tasks because, um, we were able to, you know, lines of convergence. And even with the gliders at the time, we would, we did 140k in return, about 60 people in gold, this big 175k goal, and lots of other exciting things. And uh, so we were sort of the flavor, we were the, uh, Peterita was sort of on the map and popular, and we had you know, a lot of people wanting to do the Europeans. So we did the Europeans, and unfortunately, it was time also when, you know, there was a lot of developments and Things were being pushed, you know. I was listening to Kiwi's um, podcast the other day, and he was talking about you know this this time as well, where gliders were beginning to get a little bit problematic and difficult to fly, and there were uh, accidents in many comms. And then it, once again, you know, we we had, well, once again for the you know, we had our first kind of competition, and it was just at this cusp of when gliders were becoming very very problematic, and then we had a fatal accident. At our event as well, it was actually mid air um, uh, soon after launch. Um, So, probably you couldn't really say was it anything to do with the gliders? I don't think so, actually, because actually the accident that day was instigated by a a pilot flying a um, what would have been a DHV-23 back in those days, which would have been like a C-class glider. Mm. Uh, And he had he fell on top of another glider, and they went both way down to the deck. So it wasn't really the the fact that it was dangerous gliders, but it was on top of all the other uh, accidents and competences at that time, which then brought about the the possibility of the serial class. And there was a lot of argument from, uh, especially Robbie Whittle, who was very much just the messiah, was, you know, trying to push this forward. And, um, and in some countries, such as Great Britain, they went sort of unilaterally and decided we're going to fly zero class only in our nationals. A number of countries did that, but a number of countries didn't, which then gave some imparity, really. If, you know, if you're going to the world's events and some people are flying zero and some people are flying open class, well, you kind of, you kind of kind of imagine who's gonna win. <laughs> so the zero class, although it struggled along for quite a few years and it became this, and it was successful in many ways because it, it, it did um, give, give people that option to take a slightly less um, risky route. And also, if we go back to the nineties and maybe even the early two, and the two thousands, um, there were some really nice open class lighters, the real hot ships, the ones that ran really really well. But you couldn't get your hands on them because they were reserved for the the, the factory factory pilots. So it's also caused a certain amount of resentment that um, people couldn't get the good couldn't get these good lighters. Um, but that was another kind of worms back in the nineties. Of course, then moving back to 2011 when we've got the same problem but this time the CI girls took you know definitive action and said that's enough and serial class only but of course this the serial class gliders soon came to resemble very much the uh the open class gliders mm-hmm. in a few years
0: right sure and i i i, I remember the the fallout from that uh you know, the a lot of the kind of lighter pilots. I'm thinking about like Tom Payne and I remember Mad Cindergard. There were there were a lot of pilots that just that was kind of it. You know, the Peter Heater was was it when when they banned the open class. uh, A lot of the pilots that are lighter, which of course makes me really feel for the the typically the women pilots who are really light. uh, Just they just didn't feel like they could compete anymore because they didn't have that open class possibility. And it, it was, it was very discouraging. I know for, for many, I think feels, I mean, it feels like that's kind of come around now and it's not so much as, as big of an issue. I mean, the weight thing has always been an issue, but um, it, I mean, it must've, it must've just been emotionally, not just from the, not just from the tragedy of the two deaths, obviously, but just everything else. It must've just been. Quite a soup that you were in.
1: Uh, yes, it certainly was. I mean, well, going back to the the weight thing, there's an anecdote from the on the first day of the um, the worlds here uh, that we only had one Chinese pilot that that year, and it was a, a girl. I can't remember her name now, unfortunately. And she was very lightweight, probably about forty, forty, forty five kilos. And most teams will come with assistants, which they had to pay to pay for. And most teams will come with one or two assistants. I believe the, the Chinese had four assistants and one pilot. But it was this girl, she had she was carrying a huge amount of, of ballast. She was, flying, uh, she was flying an R-11. And uh, Calver, who is my safety uh, director, he's very, he's very, the rules are the rules. And he had his, he had a weighing machine at takeoff, a little of a hammock, a you know, very professional sort of weighing machine. And he liked to weigh people. And this, uh, this girl, obviously, walking out to takeoff with being carried by four strong uh, Chinese assistance kind of caught his eye. So um, for safety, you know, in, inverted commas, he took her away there and he said, we can not carry all that ballast. So he took the ballast off her and of course that made her completely unsafe. So and she subsequently took off and th- flew out, had a deflation threw a reserve and um, we later had to recover her from a tree. So you know, the, some of these rules which were implicated um, about because it is true you know if you are carrying a lot of weight when you crash then it can be a problem but of course there you know with those particular gliders you know, they needed to be weighted up obviously to be uh to be safe mm-hmm. so there was a lot of anachronisms really on the on the whole safety thing and hopefully you know things are
0: better now yeah i mean it's it's it, and again it's this it's it's when you look at the range, you know, when you have a, a you know big, heavy, strong guy that's carrying the the max, you know, he's up at the thirty two versus, you know, like that the Chinese girl that you're talking about. I mean, it's just you know, you're for for one person that's quite a bit of weight for another person. It's it's you're more than double <laughs> potentially, <laughs> and it's and it becomes really challenging for takeoff and landing, and obviously for landing, you know, after you've just flown a comp and. Uh, you're tired, and yeah, it can be real risky. I I don't, I can't remember if that was a contributing factor in Seiko's accident. I think when she broke both of her ankles, that might not. I I can't remember if that was an acro thing or if that was just from her being totally loaded up. I'd have to reach out and find out. But um, yeah, I mean, I I know. I mean, just from my own personal experience, you know, like in Alaska, we're carrying all that weight is it's tough when you land or it's tough if you don't have the right kind of wind.
1: Yeah. 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 But, yeah, but um, you know, if you want to fly those gliders then I guess you have to wait up. And if it is, it's for me, it was always the, the, having to carry the, the weight up the mountain rather than, uh, you know, you can always dump it before you just before you land, I guess. Can't you? But, um, mm. Yeah, I mean, it's one of these eternal questions. I think Brett Janoway, you know, he, can, he he's come up with this new format uh, for a competition of which I cannot tell you the whole details, so although they explained it to me quite well earlier this year. And that's just been interesting what, the weightless competition, that's what he calls it. Um, yeah, Bruce
0: Goldsmith,
1: too. Event yeah. in- They're doing some really good cool stuff Yeah. Yeah. So, because uh, it's always been a bit of a bugbear with Bruce as well, because um, yeah, Bruce probably weighs around. 65, 70 kilos, and uh, you know his his observation was you know it was all the big butch guys who are winning, especially in the early days, and uh, and it be- I think it became less important you know, in the in the uh, early nineties. You know, people were sort of flying you know, huge gliders, you know, like thirty-two square meters, carrying vast amount of water, um, just because it gave them a big edge. Mm-hmm. And um, and Bruce was obviously aware of that, as we all are, and um, so yeah, maybe. Uh, Brett January's um I think he's trying to get some form of approval from the uh c i v l so uh, who knows and maybe that's a good maybe it's a good direction to go
0: and and kind of was so. was your decision to stop running comps literally because of what happened in two thousand eleven or was it just it was it was probably going to be that was probably going to happen anyway after running sixty something comps
1: well I kind of um Eased off a little bit some years before. Uh, the reason we ran the Worlds in 2011 was really to save the site here, because um, if you're not, you know, we have the, we have a problem here which goes back a couple of hundred years. Curiously enough, um, uh, I'll explain why. But basically, the, the site of Piedrahita, although it's directly above Piedrahita, doesn't actually belong to Piedrahita because about 200 years ago, the, the, the Duke of Alba, who was a local aristocrat, He's got a, he was building a palace here, and uh, he obviously he couldn't squeeze enough taxes out of the local um, serfs. And uh, he went to a, a nearby village and he asked, you know, to get some money or for building supplies. And uh, in return, he said, "Well, you can have as much of the mountain as you can gather by riding, you know, with a, a flock of, I'm not a flock now, with a, uh, a bunch of goats." So, Cliffley Clock, you know, this, this other guy from the nearby town. It took away most of the mountain, including the takeoff. So Peter Eater now doesn't own the mountain, as this nearby small village does. So, when we started out all this, uh, these events back in the early 90s, the problem we had, although Peter Eater were very, very keen, the town hall for us to run events, it didn't actually belong to them, the takeoff. Of course, we were landing in Peter Eater, um, and all the infrastructure was in Peter Eater, but this small village of about 40 inhabitants, uh, they were the ones who owned the takeoff. And, um, they wanted uh they wanted some benefit from us using their site so we had yeah, there's all sorts of things going on and uh eventually the provincial government uh stepped in and they uh built a bar take takeoff and they reconditioned the takeoff to a certain amount so that this village could um profit from it however that wasn't enough of them i remember on the very first day of the first pwc in 1994 on the practice day actually uh, they came up the takeoff, and they, bar, they put a bar wire across right across the middle of the takeoff, uh, leaving us about you know, about ten meters for a takeoff run in front of the bar wire. It was going on? crazy! And of course, we had all these international pilots turning up, thinking these guys are trying to kill us. You know, by wire all over the takeoff. And then a further a further negotiation and you with know, with the guys with the, with the politicians, and it was sorted out to a certain extent. But unless, you know, but by running events each year, then of course the town hall were quite happy you know, seeing tourism coming in. But then, as we eased off a little bit during after about know, 2000, oh, we had a big problem. That's right, in 2000, near 2000, they wanted they wanted to put aerogenerators, wind you know, electricity windmills across to take off, and. Um, uh, obviously, we didn't want that. It wasn't going to be very good for paragliding. The town didn't want it because it's not very nice for any any form of tourism. But of course, the village, the little village, they were had to make a lot of money from this. So they suddenly became very, very eco- ecologically aware and uh, wanted their clean energy and the thirty thousand euros per year for the uh, each windmill. And so there was a bit of fight. You know, we had a big struggle and demonstrations, uh, marches, roadblocks, and eventually. It kind of won out, and we didn't have the uh, windmills installed. But for many years, we weren't allowed to fly. You know, we would, although we had uh, we had supposedly had the legal right of flying at the takeoff. The, the owners could go to the police station and say, "Look, they're on our land," so they bar by- wired it up. So we were actually going in, taking off over, over this new, new barbed that they had been put up. And for many years, you know, the whole thing went into a, a bit of a collapse. And you know, to get the things going back again, to get the Town hall and the provincial government on our side, well, what's better than the world championships? So, in we went to uh, and we bid for the world championships and uh, we got it. and Of course, that allowed you know huge infrastructure. We now got you know, 3,000 square meters of uh, astroturf, the bar was rebuilt. And so, the, the positive aspect of the world championship was the fact that we've now got a fantastic takeoff and a great infrastructure. Um, my last the world, last world championships i did with the british team was in uh, manila in um in australia won, in, won bruce in won. 2007 yeah. uh bruce won though and yes he did and um and uh, i thought well I, I did quite well there because uh, i won a couple of events before in manila Godfrey bless open events and the new zealand nationals I won there as well and so i thought well if i'm ever going to do anything good it's going to be here in manila you know this world's cause, um I'd been to other worlds and I didn't do particularly well, to be honest. And um, it was going okay. No, unfortunately, well, was it going okay? Not really, because we had pretty poor weather. You know, as often happens, you know, Manila is a fantastic venue. And then along came the World Championships, and you know, poor golf, poor us. You know, we all had this really suboptimal, bad weather. You know, lots of clouds, storms. The week before, we had the experience with uh, Ava Vishnevskaya. If you remember, the girl who went up into the sure. uh, into the to ten thousand meters, because I was there, I was actually just underneath there. And um, I mean, that really? was another story, you and know, that was just crazy, crazy day. I, you know, it was an open, it was an open distance uh, uh, competition, which Godfrey was running, running the week before, and um, I took off, and I was, I was top of the stack, first to leave, and I went off because it was a big congestus cloud. Forming I mean, downwind. I thought, oh, no thanks, or go crosswind. And you know, it was open distance. You could go any direction you wanted to. But I thought, well, no one's going to get towards that It'd be congested guys because that'd be crazy. So they're going to follow me. And I can't confidently look back, and everybody went the other way, directly to this thing, Jeez. this big cloud. But, um, competition. And I kept on off on of my. On my other route, but of course it was a bad route, I ended up getting low. And by the time I got back up again, I drifted on downwind and I was kind of going in the same direction as everyone else. Meanwhile, there's another big congestion cloud about 20 kilometres further to the right of track. And um, I was kind of speeding up and noticing it was all getting a little bit lifty. And then these two cumuluses, very large cumuluses, tarot cumulus, were beginning to coalesce. And there were still gaps, and you know, I was just flying straight through. Lots of people were still climbing, and I yeah, I kind of got to the edge just before the sort of clunk, you know, the door shut behind me, and it was just solid clad. And um, I'm not a particularly brave person anymore, and uh, I just kept on pushing, 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 got beyond that. And looking back, you know, you could see the shelf of the cuneum, and there were people, they were just climbing underneath it. And uh, there was only about three people ahead of me, I think. You know, Everyone was trying to get high. I, I didn't worry about the height. I think David, David Degas was ahead and um, uh, a few, two or three others. But as I was pushing into the blue, as it got lower, I could feel the, the wind was changing. It was all being hoovered back into the, the in, so I didn't take any climbs. It would have just drifted back into the tide. I landed very, very quickly, but by the time I was packed up, it was you know, pissing down with rain and it had gone crazy. And, of course, there's lots of stories that day. And I went to find some, uh, some shelter. And then, when the rainy stuff car I think it was a German team leader, Stefan Mushed, and uh, the last coordinator he had was above that shack, you know pretty much where I was watching those people rather foolishly take a climb into the uh, q and uh well, yeah, so there I was that day and then the week after minute, so going back to my last competition, I thought I might do quite well, but unfortunately, it was pretty shit weather, and which wouldn't have been so bad because i 'm British kind of used to bad weather and Mincing around, um, but I was flying uh, Bruce's new um, FR4. I think it was called. And this is a this is a real banana. It was a one in eight aspect ratio glider. You know, it was a three liner, and uh, it didn't have any possibility of big earring or I think you could beeline. But Bruce said mm, maybe not. It's a little bit exciting, and um, and with the competition, with so many clouds around, you know, you kind of couldn't control your height very well. So then, you'd have to sort of take big routes around clouds, or fly extraordinarily fast, and hopefully you'll descend before you go into cloud. So, well, I had some good days, some bad days. As a whole, the British team were doing okay. In fact, on the for the three days before the end of the event, we were actually we were on the podium as a team. We would have been on the podium, and Bruce was winning. And then um, we thought, oh well, okay. You know, I was sort of, I do not know what I was proving. Twentieth or something, not so bad, not so awful, and um, I'm, not, I'm not being that dude, do an actually I'm a worse than that. But I wasn't, I wasn't too embarrassingly bad, and we were going to be on the podium as a British team. We hey ho, and it was bad weather. and It was, and it's looking like it's going to be bad weather. And we thought, great, may it rain for the you know for the last day because um <laughs> and, uh, and Bruce will win and we'll win. And yeah, you know, I think. It's the worst possible thing you can do in the competition to hope for bad weather, of course. Yes. So then the next day, of course, the weather, it gets good. And you're all demotivated because you, you don't want to fly. And then we had to fly. And both, I think it was myself, Mark and Russell, we all just had a bomb. But Bruce, superstar, managed to get into goal, took the world's and uh the rest of us had a good old cry because we were no longer on the podium <laughs> but uh and then uh, we had really really shitty results so i thought well bloody hell i am really shit so i better stop doing this oh i didn't <laughs> actually i went to i think i did the pre i did the pre was in in in, in, in 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 2009 um but it was all sort of on the downhill slope for me then really and um and then, of course, I got focused on trying to get this world thing together. And I thought, well, that's going to be my swan song as far as, you know, I wanted to go out you know, with a fantastic, exceptional event, you know, it was going to be fabulous every day, you know, big, epic tasks and everything you want in a composition. And I was going to be, you know, Lord, there's a superstar in a and meet that actor. And, of course, it didn't turn out to be anything like that at all. It turned out to be you know, a tragic nightmare and a... And it turned out to be what it was, which we, we've already discussed. I was in a pretty bad way that year, and then, uh, and then I had a really bad accident myself, personal accident, you know, just nothing spectacular. You know all the really bad accidents, you know, just stupid things. So I, I managed to mash myself up really badly and I shattered my right arm, and uh, you know, that left me in pain for oof, five five years, you know, pretty bad pain. And I lost lost the use of my arm, pretty much. You know, it's, well, it's still locked. In uh, I haven't got much much movement on it. But for some time for many years, I was able, I was able to fly. But I went back to flying, uh, B class gliders, and um, yeah, I couldn't con, you know, couldn't really consider flying a competition then on. And then I kind of fell out of the habit, and I actually began to um, realize how much uh, how liberating not flying competitions is. Uh, because of course, when you fly a competition, you're pretty angry most of the time. Because no, because unless you win, um, it's a pretty uh, annoying experience sometimes. Because uh, there's a lot of pressure, and you, and uh, if you don't do well, you can you get pretty pissed off. And uh, and I as a meet director running competitions, also you've got you know 150 people who are on that are all pretty pissed off a lot of the time as well. Because you know there's only one guy who wins at the end of the end of the competition, so. <laughs> <laughs> it was um, in a way liberating for a few years, but then you know, of course, the town hall here. Okay, hey, what's going on? We need you know, we need competitions, and luckily, uh, other people kind of st- stepped up. Actually, a the, lolly, the, the, uh, the chapel was the uh, the other organizer of the world, He wanted to carry on running Spanish events and things. So, um, although I wasn't meet director, I, I started doing them. Um, the meteo briefing and then I got roped into doing uh, helping on the task and became pretty much the meet director for a number of um events here. But I was always a little bit um reluctant, shall we say. And um but then a few years ago I was run up by some nice people in uh Colombia and asked me to help out with an event in Rolandillo. So I went there and that was this, that was a different experience. It was um it was more of a fun event and most of the people were happy most of the time, which is refreshing. <laughs> and,
0: um, it's such a consistent place, isn't it? I mean, you get to, I think people are happy when yeah, they get yeah. to fly every day. And it's, that's the nice thing about rolling the NEO is you just get pretty consistent weather.
1: Yeah. yeah. And also I think a lot of people go there, not really for the event. You know, this, these were, um, open events, sort of fun events. And, um, of course there was, there was the serious guys, you know, um, and, A lot of Americans and on the whole, people were really nice and they were really good about it. And I thought, yeah, actually, I do kind of miss this and um, I'll do this again if they ask me again. And they did um, this year and I think one other time. So who knows? You know, who knows?
0: One of the problems we have with comps in the States is no one can figure out how to cover their costs. You know, so they, they have to charge a lot of money to do it. And then so then that often affects people signing up because they're pretty expensive and you know we just we don't have the the sponsors that help cover the retrieve costs or the gas costs or the vehicle costs or the personnel costs that kind of thing i mean it's just we've never really figured it out like you know miguel and his whole alas del hombre team has done in valle or it sounds like you've done in peter hita is that um
1: no, 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 we haven't done this. That's been the uh, big problem. You know, we've never, oh. ever had a sponsor beyond, well, actually, no, we, we've had to rely on the, the town hall and the provincial government throwing some money. Up. Mm. And I did actually have, um, you yeah, know, you've heard of Red Bull, I guess, obviously. <laughs> well, the Red Bull, <laughs> they sponsored us in the, uh, it was a PWC or the Europeans back in the mid 90s. Do, you know do you know what they sponsored us with? Well, they turned up with a couple, a couple of cars and some girls in bikinis handing out Red Bull, and they lent us a tent. And I think I think we got two crates of well, we got two crates of Red Bull out of it. <laughs> and I had to pay. I had to drive the I had to drive the tent back to Madrid, and it was uh,
0: <laughs> thank uh, you very little uh, Red
1: Bull. <laughs> it wasn't big bucks, you know. And then you know, for example, one of the reasons I stopped doing the PWC, we had some very successful PWCs here, and. Uh, in nine, in, but after 1998, yeah, I've already mentioned the death of the, in the Europeans. Now the Europeans is very you know, a category one competition is a very expensive event to run, and you know we ran it once again with money from the provincial government. Um, but the, you know, we knew how much it's going to cost. You know, and the PwC costs a lot of money as well to run if you do it correctly with all the bells and whistles, all the hospitality stuff that you have to do. But after 1998, and that. A event with the with a, another tragic death, I wasn't so keen. Uh, but the tenor were pressuring me to run in a, a PWC event. So um, I was in the PWC committee at this time. I think I was I started with the PWC committee in about '95 because they wanted someone to give a bit of input because most of the committee it was people like Harry Buns, Hans Bollinger, and um, it was mainly uh, pilots who were and they were looking you know what pilots won, which is great, but of course. Sometimes you know, you need to. Actually, the guys were putting their neck out to run the events with the organisers. They, we, they felt that they they needed to get some input from there. So I was on the PWC, and I requested running another event, Peterhead. Although I didn't really want to, so we got a PWC for nineteen ninety nine. And the Pantanal said, "Yeah, yeah, we'll back you up," you know. And I said, "This is going to cost a lot of money. You know, we've got to pay the quota on PWC." "Sure, no worries. You yeah, know, we got loads of people we can ask for sponsorship." Oh, great, because you know I am completely rubbish any form of you know. Trying to get sponsorship, but you go ahead and knock yourself out. Great, fantastic, and um, so we went ahead with. You know, we went ahead with of of getting everything going. You know, the entry started coming in, um, and I think it was about a month before I went to the town hall, and unfortunately, they'd had an <laughs> election in the meantime, and some of the the councillors had changed. And I said, "Hey, yeah, uh, how are you getting on with all these sponsors?" And he said, oh, "Well, um, I think we're going to cancel. I think we're going to cancel." Because um, oh. we can't, yeah, you know, we haven't found anyone. What? You know, we're kind of a month or so away. The oh. money was in. P- people had the flights booked, and we had to go ahead with them. We had so all we had the we had the entropy money. So um, I spoke to um, Xavier Murillo and who was going to be in my TV for that event, and Freda Screamer and Mandy who were going to be the scorers. So that in those days, that was just a very small. T- now, things have changed in the PvP. Now they have their whole team, and the organisers are very little apart from putting up the, sort of the shared infrastructure. Um, but in those days, it was slightly different. But you know, I would normally have to pay for their flights across. I said, hey, is that you know jump in your car? All come in one car. You're going to stay at my house, <laughs> and we're going to cut costs. And, of course, we had to cut costs. And you might think, well, wouldn't it be great if it rained for half the week and we could lose some traffic some – and, of course, it turned out to be you know, every single day was flyable – and good, so all the expenses were there. But we ran the event, and it was a lot of hassle. And I, we kind of broke even, didn't lose money, but you know, that was a lot of hassle and a lot of stress for yeah, not making any money. And with the potential to have lost a lot of money. So that was the end of it for me for running uh, for the PWs and P, in PWC without, you know, actually, and they, I actually had the written thing stamped, signed, and sealed from the town hall at that time. So when we went to the world, I made sure that the mayor of Peterita came with me to Austria with some of the councillors and we did the presentation together. And it was all seen as them being the organisers, although really it's a local club, you know, they were the front men. So they were going to get all the kudos and they were going to pick up all the bills, of course, as well. And that way, you know, I had them sort of trapped on that second time uh, for the worlds in 2011. But there uh, there is there, we – we've never had a – apart from those you know, two cans of – two crates, sorry, of Red Bull. I shouldn't shortchange them. It was two crates, not two cans, and very, you know, <laughs> sexy girls with bikinis on the day, you know. That was uh, the sum total of our uh, sponsorship, ah, I guess. Geez. Well, we well, yeah, it's, a,
0: it's a tough sport, and I think Miguel could teach us all a lot about that side of it. He's he's obviously got it pretty figured out down in Mexico, although with, with COVID, it's – It's proving challenging for, for everybody, obviously, but okay. Well, two things you said that I I need to bring you back to, uh, and you also, you wrote this in your email to me as well. You had this accident that, that did your arm in, did that, did that lead to the illustrations or were you an illustrator already?
1: No, I wasn't an illustrator already. I uh, had a great interest in, uh, illustration and eyes, but, um, you know, as a, uh, child, younger person but i got you know, since i was um you know 18 uh, a kid i was just so motivated by flying and stuff and that just kind of got in the way of everything else really and then suddenly you know, I, I lost the interest in the competitions and uh and i had this sort of arm my right arm and i am right-handed and it was um just like it belonged to somebody else you know i've got very little movement in it and uh, I thought well, I'm going to do some rehabilitation. I started trying to draw. It was quite painful, and uh, it was through that really, sort of early. Uh, and then it started to get better, and I found by having having a board at the right angle, I could use, I could slide my arm across and draw. You know, by sliding the uh, the pen across there, and you know, I started going digital, which is much, which is even sliding out of the screen. And um, you I know, can. I started. Um, messing around with animation, which is something I wanted to do for years as well. And uh, and I think I put something up about, a little thing about the evolution of paragliding, hang gliding. Hand gliding. Mm, yeah, and uh, Ed great. from uh, Cross Country Magazine saw it. And at that time, he was looking to inject a bit of sort of card, illustration cartoons in the magazine. And he said, can I try to do some illustration? And uh, they had this idea of doing, a piece about you know the, the, the multi the huge range of personalities within the sport and with the, the, but there's, within that range of 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 the people within the sport there are many stereotypes and so there were little uh, little stories you'd write each month and I was illustrating those stories for um, I think we probably did a, a couple of years of those to us around yeah, team they were and they were then,
0: great and, and now and again you, you illustrated for for, all, for kiwis, you know, uh, gun for the world's that was those were those were really terrific.
1: Yeah, and no, I really enjoyed them this that stuff for Kiwi. You know, there was it was a struggle at the beginning with him because, uh, uh, well, well, he's a forceful sort of personality, and uh, he was really uh, fired up on the whole um, the competition thing, you know. And and I I'd, I I'd, I'd, I'd had met him uh, back in the nineties, and he'd been out in Peterita. And I'd been seeing him over the years, and he's you know, very gregarious sort of a extroverted guy and um and then um, but I'd never really seen him do much flying. He'd always be turning up. he'd turn up at the worlds in Portugal, and he was covering an event, and of course, he did that wow. Well, he talked about his first piece for XV magazine, the article he did for the worlds in in Granada back in I think the year 2000. I was at that event, and it was uh I thought that was one of the best things I'd ever read. As far as that was the the best ever review of a of a paragliding event, that's just fantastic. And uh, of course, now I met him later at other, other events, but he was never really flying. He was often he was involved in his writing and stuff. And when I met him, he was reporting as opposed to flying in the event. And then now here he is, 50, 53, and he's starting this competition thing. And um, of course, he sent me the he sent me the the, the story. And, uh, of course, I'm searching for, um, to find some angle, you know, a bit of humor. Because uh, I'm not just going to, I'm not doing sort of a direct reporting. I'm taking any little remark he might make and going off in a complete, a complete tangent with, my, with my, this little, my own little story. And yeah? not just going to be. And, of course, I picked up on the whole psychedelic thing. And, uh, you know, I, we had quite a tight deadline. And I was working, you know, I probably did uh, probably two hundred hours or something, so a huge amount of time in the space of these two two weeks to um, get these out. And then uh, he rang me up and he was really, hey, hi, it's great, Steve. You know, we're gonna be me like, you know, Hunter Thompson, and you're gonna be my, you know, um, my illustrator. You know, he was really fired up. And I said, yeah, great, and you know, I've done this stuff. You know, I'll, I'll stick them across and the uh, I'll, I'll send them to you now. So I got home because you know, I was out walking the dogs when he called me and I, I sent them to him by email. And then uh, I thought, he's going to love these. And nothing came back. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and it was quiet, you know, radio silence. And I thought, oh, I mean, hey, maybe he didn't like them. And then uh, Ed, Ed rang me, or Ed, I got an email from Ed I'm in the pub with Kiwi. He's mad. <laughs> he's really, <laughs> really, really pissed off. And uh, of course, he didn't want the, uh, the whole psychedelic thing to be brought in. And of course, in that first edition, there was, you know, there's tryptamine frogs on his head. And, uh, you know, it's just, you know, magic mushrooms here and there. It was just, and he wanted to be seen as a very serious person because he was going to be, well, he wanted to be selected for the paralleling team. He didn't want mm. to be, I, I don't if, I presume people, I presume that everybody knew about his, you know, psychedelic, you know, writing career. But he was trying to keep that very secretive, and it seemed, and uh, anyway, luckily Ed sort of talked him down, you know, and uh, and he ended up, you know, really actually enjoying it, and he put mm. it on, you know, he he kind of really got to make like his little alter cartoon. uh.
0: <sighs> oh, that really surprises me, at knowing knowing Kiwi like I do. I, that surprises. I mean, I guess what it all comes down to isn't isn't it? Is you know, we all have egos, and we, especially as pilots, we're all pretty cowboy and independent and think we're the smartest thing ever, you know, and then our idea is going to work. And uh, so I guess, I guess he, you know, t- still firmly falls in that, you know, he has an ego, I guess, and like we all do. So that's interesting though. I would have thought he would have kind of celebrated. I tried to get him going on that route a couple of times in the podcast and he just, there was no, it just refused. He didn't, yeah. Well, you know. I guess, Yeah, well, he, I guess he wants to so be- interesting because it's such a big part of his life. I mean, a bigger part, really.
1: Yeah, you know, and I think at the end he really appreciated it, and he really enjoyed it. And then at the end, he was he was trying to feed me with uh, ideas for cartoons, and um, you know, he had this whole this whole Ralph Steadman uh, leaving Las Vegas style image, which we were going to do for the last one, which never, um, you know, they, we, we, there were some uh, fallouts with that particular series. Um, he had some dance with some people in the New in the Zealand Federation. Some people didn't like some of the artwork, which I did, um, which I tried to explain, actually was linked to my. You know, I did what there was one particular picture, and because uh, Kiwi was uh, uh, annoyed at one particular event because he was pushed off the podium yeah. uh, by a uh, meat director who was flying in the event, and um, you know, I'm pretty um against meat directors flying um i can't really see how you can do both of those things in fact i did actually do that myself once and i i well here's another another of my accident stories i we back in um 19 1994 on my first pwt you know i was a pilot love flying wanted to fly but i was also the me director so i wasn't going to fly as a pilot and score but I wanted to kind of be involved, you know. And I had a TD, which was Xavier Raymond at the time. And um, we had this uh, task. And it was a similar route to the, the previous year. I did uh, this big flight and um, in 93. And I got what was then the European record, which was uh, quite big in those days. Uh, I mean, in those days, it was easy to get records in Europe because, you know, anything over 100 was like big stuff. And I did about 160 Ks. And I ran along the age of CUNIN uh, convergence line, which... Um, which is jolly frightening, jolly stupid, but I survived it and like did a big flight. And the year after, we had kind of similar conditions and we had to cancel the, t- the task. But as I was trying to get down, my glider went to pieces on me and um, I ended up with the thing spinning. I had a big, the whole thing was all twisted up and I was like spiraled, you know, spiraling down, no control, all twisted up. So I had to throw my reserve and I threw my reserve, and um, luckily it opened and then I started going up under the reserve because of course there was a and m above us. And then the glider sort of um, started flashing around and oh, the glider kind of started flying because it was cra- heavily uh But that sort of unfolded itself and then I downplaned, which was uh, very, very convenient. And uh, as I downplaned, uh, I was actually very close to goal at this time. Uh, the meat, being the meat director, I thought, well, I better say something because they're all down and go watching me. And uh, although it'd be absolutely terrifying, I thought, well, the parachute's out, and I'm now actually descending, and I might actually survive this. So I better come across. He's a bit of a hero, you know. I thought, so I was thinking, you know, what would, what would a, what would a Spitfire pilot say as he was just about to bail out? You know. So I, I had, a, I, really, I thought, right, this, I was going to say this. Right, oh, this is a um, spot of trouble. But it seems to be okay now, coming down, okay. That's what I was going to say. But um, I kind of got hold of my radio, okay? By now I had the glider sort of gathered it up and I was coming down on the reserve. You know, there were lightning bolts and things belting off to the uh, to the, uh, east of us, but to the left it was sunny. But um, I was going down, which was convenient, and uh, I was about to say these immortal words, and I realized my tongue was so dry and so expanded. I was <laughs> And and then I hit the grass from because I got to lower and then I went help and so it's, <laughs> so I didn't come across as very very brave or very noble at all and then I kind of hit the ground going extraordinarily fast bounced a few times and I went across luckily we were in this sort of Castilian flatlands and I was dragged across this field at a rate of knots and then luckily there was a field the next field coming out didn't have a fence but it was uh, sunflowers uh, plant uh, field Tall some place. so that sort of broke the um, the speed of my, uh, of my travel and then shortly after actually jockey Sanzin sort of turned up because he was in goal and he jumped in the car and rushed in came and he was the first on the scene and uh, yes well that was that was a mess do you think she- I was a meter actually, and I was in the sky and I made it yeah that was very embarrassing for
0: <laughs> instance. In a reserve you can't do you,
1: you you can't do both jobs very effectively. <clears throat> and um, anyway, going back to Kiwi, uh, and also, so we're talking about, I was trying to think of a pilot's reaction to meat directors. So we're talking about Kiwi was a little bit disgruntled with this particular meat director. And I was trying to think of, well, how can I, pick, how can I portray what pilots think of a meat director? And I cast my mind back to that events in 2011 not the day of the accident the day before when all those pilots had a fantastic day got to gold at 175 k's and then the meat director told them sorry but you're uh, you've got a zero for the day mm. and um they didn't like me very much at all really <laughs> the, the briefing the next day you know there was the odd word of you know fascist bastard and that sort of you know comment uh, and so, when I came to draw, you know, what's often an embodiment of a meat director, I did a, a picture of a sort of you know, jack-booted little fascist type, which had no resemblance. It wasn't a caricature of anyone in particular. It's just a caricature of a fascist dictator from the nineteen thirties, dressed up in a sort of meat-directing kit, with a with a, he had a map behind him. And I think in the background there there was a shadow of two people he'd hung for um, airspace infringements. But anyway, that didn't go over very well with a particular meat director in uh, <laughs> New Zealand, who had pushed Kiwi off the off the podium, and because of that, perhaps because of that drawing, and perhaps of Kiwi's belligerence at times, then a little thing kicked off with the Federation, and then you know, Kiwi came. Oh, he got a little bit rifled about, a bit riled about that, really. And, uh, because of that the magazine had to make an apology. And I think that kind of pretty much put a downer on the, on the series.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I think
1: although Kiwi did the, yeah, he did actually, he wrote the last ones. And of course the whole series was called the road to Macedonia, but by this time the world's in Macedonia had already gone. And Kiwi had, um, spent some, quite some time. He was a bit late on getting the, uh, the workout because he broke his arm in the meantime or his wrist so he couldn't ride so things got a little bit a little bit heated and there was a, it ended a little bit sadly really but mm. i really enjoyed the whole thing and it was uh it was great to be uh with him there and of course you know it's devastating to hear about his um his early demise there and uh
0: yeah, the, the weekend yeah. before uh, we were flying in Nevada together, and he, I, I'm very intimate with that whole uh, story you just recollected because I, of course, heard it. I heard an earful about it uh, from him on on his side that was <laughs> ongoing I'm sure for a did. while. Yeah. And, but he was. It was really interesting because I think in this last year, I'm pretty sure he did 11 or 12 comps. Uh, I mean, he just went from comp to comp to comp, and it was it really kind of. Over, I mean, he was actually losing interest a little bit in Burning Man. He had gotten kind of corporate and big money, and in that thing that had kind of been a big chunk of his life for over 20 years. And so he was he was really putting a lot of effort and time into comps. And I, he made a crack when we were in Nevada that he 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 kind of he came up and joined us mostly just out of boredom. And and that you know he wasn't there were no comps, and he was like, God, it's just you know I I don't have. You know, none of the psychedelic scene is happening right now because you can't, you know, be together in large hmm. groups. So none of that stuff's happening and none of the comps are happening. And I just, you know, I don't know what to do with myself. <laughs> and he and he was he was laughing at himself because he said, I just, I, I'm surprised that the comp scene has become such a big part of my, you know, free time and entertainment and, and what I'm pursuing. Is that it, uh, my I'm, I'm going to orient this towards a question, uh, has, was for you being a part of the comp scene, you know, all those decades, I mean, this is, it really was almost from the beginning in your hang gliding days and, and on through, you know, looking back, would you have done, would you have put more emphasis on something else? What was, are you, are you, would you have changed anything looking back?
1: If I i have changed not crashing on, on numerous occasions, <laughs> that's for <pretty> sure. <laughs> but you don't often get advanced warning of that. Um, but yeah, I used to make, a, I, mean, I had a real habit of crashing hang gliders but you seem to be able to crash those, and, and the wreckage tends to save you on the, on, on the whole, although not always the case. But I don't know why, they, I'm not sure what I would have changed. Um, you know, t- I've never been you know, particularly wealthy. I wasn't really able to follow the whole competition thing to my design. I would I would have flown a lot more events than I did, but you know, the financial constraints were just too much. You know, I was I was able to go to many events by being a team in the nineties. Most of the events I went to, I was going there working as a as a teen, as a technical delegate for the, for the PWC, which is a role which um, Zamir Rodriguez uh, then took on and really made his own during the two thousands. Um, but I, and of course I have to work here in the summer. So the summer season was pretty much close to me. So most of the comms I was doing is in Australia and what well, I, I would have liked to have done more, but I, it wasn't really a route for me, a route for me to do so. Um, it's the fly guiding I do, you know, of course you know, from here, from June to August is when our work season. And then the rest of the year was, it's no good at all here for, for cross country. So, um, you know, during the summer, I couldn't really compete. Um, so I don't know. You know, it's, um, who knows how we would have changed things. You know, perhaps I should have got a proper job when I was younger and done that. But you know, this, I, also, I do admire people who can, can, can do, both. you know, can have a proper career and also do their paragliding and then be able to, Put the flying aside and have a normal sort of family work life. And I was just never able to do that. You know, I was so obsessed from an early age that, um, yeah, just went along this whole poverty stricken, you know, following the flying thing. So, <laughs> yeah, you're, so there you it, go.
0: In your, uh, on your website, it said hang gliding ruined any serious career path. And, and you, you studied zoology and f- physiology and then you got into, hang gliding sounds like pretty soon or we're at the kind of the same time you're coming out of school and and you obviously chose the the career path of of piloting uh you know that that was a while back steve I, you, you and i are in the same department here when it comes to getting a little older in the tooth but it's uh any regrets no
1: i don't know i mean i hang gliding was just uh so important to me you know i, I had a you know, when I started, I had a, a, a sort of one of the pilots in our local club, a guy called Mark Haycraft, who was always my guru, who's now I think he's won the French League many times over the last few years. Where you know, he used to say, you know, I remember us thinking, you know, if even if someone said, you know, this is going to kill you within the next five years, it would have been difficult to stop. You know, it was just such, such an obsession, such a buzz. And of course, I did give up. You know, I did give up hangar because I don't fly hangars anymore, which is kind of curious, but of course then paragliding took over. But yeah, it was just such a, it's just a such demand uh, on, you know, 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 many people suffer this, you know, you can't be happy, it is a drug, you know, it's like (laughs) crack cocaine or any of those other things, you know, it it creates a dependency. I think I'm over the worst of it now, I'm sort of in rehabilitation, I can actually, you know, (laughs) chill out on a a good flying day and, and not worry too much about what I'm missing. Um, but yeah, in the early, when I was younger, then it was it was hard you know, to go on, to go to a normal job and think, Christ, it looks like a good day out there, <laughs> and I'm inside here you know, trying to earn some money. So when I finally got the opportunity to, to you know, I was uh, picked up by Airways in about mm, 91 to come out to Spain to set up their their dealer network, and so for me that was a blessing. You know, I go, wow, I can finally you know do some work with um, what I really love. And of course it didn't work out at all because it was, um, it, was yeah, um, it was a disaster you know, Air- airwave importation for me in Spain didn't work out. But then I soon moved into, you know, I recognised, I discovered Peter Heat, if you like and um, saw the merits before anybody else did because there was no one really flying here, There's no effective takeoff apart from just taking off from the, the actual side of the road and by you know, developing the competitions and de- doing the fly guiding, then it all started to work, and it was an income, and it worked, and it's got better, and it's it's been fine. So I've enjoyed that, and I'm still flying after all these years. And now I don't do the I don't I don't do the competitions, and uh, that was a big buzz, but it was also a big disappointment, as I said before. But flying with you know, groups of ways, well, you know, the people going to visit me, they they come out, they're often the same people every year, so it's like flying every day with inmates going out sea. So it's great. What could be better, you know, that's,
0: mm.
1: it could have been better this year, but, <laughs> kind of, but well, you know, it's, hopefully next year we'll be uh, back to normal. But yeah, I think, I it, think the whole, the whole industry is obviously suffering.
0: Uh,
1: and so uh, yeah, it hasn't been, you no, know, luckily we were able to scrape through and get on the month of the, most of the month of July and August, we were able to fly without restriction. And, you know, we had a reasonable number of pilots coming out here, so not so bad. And of course, now things are getting worse again, but it doesn't matter because it's bad weather for us. Well, I shouldn't mm. say it doesn't matter. For the world, it matters. You know, but for Steve Hamm and our flight meter heater, it's uh, no longer important for the next few months.
0: And is the is the chunk of the work there in Peter Heater for you tandems or instruction or both?
1: No, no, it's all, it's, uh, oh, I do do tandems, yeah, but that's very minor. Part. Um, I'm, we're mainly working with um, sort of intermediate, advanced pilots, you know, usually sort of B-class, C-class guys. People are flying XC already, and they just come here for a holiday, and they want to go to XC. So I'm solving that problem for them, you know, all the infrastructure, um, accommodation, flying with them then i kind of treat each day as i would perhaps if it were a, a competition you know we do a very detailed meteor brief and talk through the potential flight we're going to do iron out all the possible problems so then we're actually flying we don't have to be you know i'm not radio controlling people at any stage you know we're just making strategic decisions or comments about the weather around us and what's happening and how we might adapt but you know, none of this you know, turn left to right you know it's um it's like family the mates and that that usual interaction which you have
0: can you um elaborate on maybe you know one or the two cuz you talked about the accident with your arm I, I not to delve into the darker side too much in this talk but i think we can often learn from from accidents uh sounds like you've had a few what are you know what 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 was the cause what were the takeaways how could you how could you help people not have the same thing happen to them?
1: Ooh, well, I mean, as I said, with Hangler, you know, it's sort of, um, I was going through aluminium like it was uh, going out of fashion <laughs> in the early days, because um, I was just young, keen, and you know, the consequences weren't that bad on the whole when I crashed the thing, so, and um, so I had a very, and I think when you're, when you haven't, when you're younger, you haven't got this preoccupation with, crikey, this might kill me. You know, you kind of, you're able to learn more effectively, so your learning curve when you're reasonably brave and not so worried about the the consequences are very good. So I I think I got hang gliding. I got pretty good, pretty quick with hang gliding because I was a bit blasé to the True. to the to the problems. Yeah, I, I landed up. Yeah, I had a, I actually had a, some very near misses. In Aust- I was I, I guess you've heard of Bill Moyes, the yeah. Australian uh, famous. Yeah, well, he was very kind. We went out for it was my first big hang gliding comp. We went out to go to the Forbes event, which is a towing event. And we went on to see Bill, you know, this, internet, this like god of hang gliding. And he's, uh, he kind of likes poms and he kind of took us under his wing and he took us up to his holiday home in uh, up somewhere north of Sydney in Newcastle. And we went towing with him. Now, his towing was uh, quite a precarious thing, in, in my opinion. It, well, it was very exciting. Basically, he'd, he'd tie a long line, like a washing line to to a speedboat, and then you coil up all this this line, this rope on the uh, on the edge of the beach, you'd clip onto the hang glider, and he had some sort of, it's like a motorcycle uh, throttle cable going up to a clip on the on the nose. And then you sort of lift your leg, he'd go herring off on the speedboat, and then when the line goes, there's no more line, and then bing, you're off, and you sort of climb out. And you'd be flying out to sea, and this, course, there's no radio. And um, I think when you get high, that's said you open, you sort of wobble, wiggle your legs around. And that means feeling about release. And we had this circumstance where we were very high going out to see this fantastic, you know, dolphins in the bay. It was beautiful. And I got that Bill old noise down there telling me. It's amazing. And I pulled the clip to, take, to get rid of the line. And it uh, just jammed. It, and just the, the line was attached to the par- the hand glider, and I had you know a kilometer or so a line out going out to sea, no radio, no idea what to do, and um, I still wiggled my legs a lot, <laughs> and I, I think Bill kind of realised what happened, and of course, well, what are we going to do, you know? Because of course I can't detach the line; it's obviously get lower. The line would go into the water, and I just I just be, like dart into the water. And luckily, uh, there was like a sandbank further out, and he, he kind of throttled back, and we just like, lowered, lowered with the with the tall line. I landed with the line on on this sandbank, oh, and God. that wasn't an accident. You know that 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 could have been a fatality. And there's a friend of mine, um, uh, Chris Jones, in the boat. And, and Bill, being an Aussie bloke, he wouldn't let Chris fly, and because Chris is a vegetarian, and he had long hair. So Bill, being an Aussie bloke, said, "No, you can't fly, mate. You know, Pommy puff." And, uh, but Chris said that Bill did get a little bit cons- – he got a little bit concerned that, you know, he, he might be kidding me that day. But the next day, you know, he, the Bill – there's another – I did have an accident, but a minor one. We're on the beach, and Bill goes herring off on the speedboat, and the line's you know, whipping away. And there's a bit of a longshore drift, so it's taking the line off one way. And then there's a wind's coming off to the right, and the speedboat's going straight on. And I'm thinking, well, which way do I point the hang glider in? Do I point at the line? So I pointed at the wind. So I pointed at the boat. And I'm thinking this really quick because the lines still whipping away. And uh, uh, I took a vector of the three, you know, and my maths was off. Anyway, well, Bill mentioned to Chris in the boat he said, well, you watch what happens now, knowing that I'm about to take a cropper. So I can have an accident. And, he, and of course, I, I was facing away, and I, that brights broke and I was dragged across the beach because of the nourisher of the boat putting the line and we totally glided for the day but Bill just wanted to show me that you know it's, he likes you know the school of hired knocks I guess and he came back and said now what did you do wrong and I, said, well, I don't know what did I do wrong He said you've got to point at the line <laughs> So that's what you need to do, point of the line. So I learned that, and I'll never forget that, but I've never been on, a, <laughs> on another speedboat uh, ride like that. So that was uh, that was mildly uncomfortable around my uh, nether parts that day. And then I did have a proper, good, real hand-guiding accident because I was still thinking, you know, I'm good at crashing. I'll carry on crashing. And then at the uh, Spanish Nationals back in uh, 1991, when I just started riding the railway, uh, we were at the second phase of the nationals in Castellon de Sos, which is a big it's sort of like an Alpine environment in the north of Spain, in the Pyrenees. And it's a great place; it's a fantastic place for paragliding. It's not so good for hang gliding because there's nowhere to land. It's very, very tricky for landing. And it was a little bit wow. like that competition which um, Kima mentioned in Granada. You know, there's a huge amount of people having crashes. And uh, then my turn came. In my crash—I was actually getting. These were the days when we didn't have um, GPSs. Now, you have to put a pin in the map when you land. And I was actually just on the wrong side of the mountain from goal. I just had to get up this mountain and I'm in goal. And um, I thought, oh, if I fly down the valley, i will be further away from the goal. So I just land on top of the mountain. And um, it wasn't right on the top of the mountain. There was a village, you know, a little bit further down up on the mountain. And I thought, oh, I'll do one of these fly-on-the-wall landings. And you know, a Fly-on-the-wall landing is where you kind of fly at the mountain and you kind of... F- Oh, it was terrifying, and then you sort of fly up and then flare, and, and I didn't do it very well, and I, I, I um, crashed. I was concussed, smashed on myself, good and proper, because I would have hit the, I hit this dry stone wall at you know, 40, know, 50 k's an hour, or whatever it was, and um, so I was concussed, put a big hole through my cheek, through to my teeth, uh, um, huge facial lacerations, all the skin ripped off my neck, my ear was hanging off, I had a laceration in my eye, Oof. and I was unconscious, sprained arm. Ribs, knee, and oh, um, possible broken neck, and um, and of course there's no radios there and nothing. And I came round. And I thought, oh, crap. not so good," you know. And um, and I had to, I was wearing those air, those lycra aero sleeves that one wears. And so I used those as sort of bandage at my face, you know, to hold my face together so my my cheek wasn't flapping around. And I knew there was a village a bit further down, so I started walking. I got to this village, you know, I was all sealing up. And knocked at the door, a little girl answered, you know, nearly fainted. Anyway, she brought me in, looking after me, you know. But this time, the uh, the village priest uh, turned up and he started, um, I thought he was giving me the last rites. He was um, in Latin, in fact, in retrospect, I think, I think it was Catalan he was speaking. And uh, anyway, that was a pretty shit accident. And uh, I ended up being taken to a hospital, a local little clinic, and they were, and I remember they faced, they sewed up my face, had about thirty stitches in my face, no anesthetic. And then they put the cut they put a cast on my arm without um setting the bone. And then the next day when they came around to check me, they, I remember he was they did some x-rays and he was holding my head, he was rotating my head, and he said, We're not quite sure if you've got a broken neck or not and whilst rotating my my head. Which was really concerning. And um but that was pretty much the end of hang gliding for me for uh, for a while because I couldn't carry the thing. So that's when I really started getting into the paragliding side of things because it was you know, paragliders weren't very good at that stage. But um, it was easier to carry up a hill and into rig, and uh, it wasn't so tough on the. Uh, and also, I began to get a little bit nervous about landing hang gliders after that. So I think for me being like uh, I'm a superhuman and I, you know, I'm never going to I'm going to be okay whatever happens. And I thought, hey, shit, you know, that's a big wake-up call. And I I was then, from that day on, you know, a lot more cautious. And probably my learning curve went down on hang gliding. But yeah. then I started paragliding. And uh, <laughs> and then uh, initially paragliding, of course, it's terrifying because the thing collapses all the time, which hang gliders didn't tend to do. And um, But we soon ran and found out that it you know, was okay, sort of, and, of course, I had yeah, I had many things near misses, you know. Um, I had one, you know, classic one where I uh, were at PwC in Kornitzola. Once again, I wasn't flying in the competition. I was the TD, but I was flying the course. And we had a very, very good meteorologist, or so we thought. And he said, oh, no problems today with storms. They're all going to be staying in Switzerland. No problems. You may see some big congestors, but absolutely no problem whatsoever. And uh, I was just after flying a bit the chorus cutting corners, I was hovering over goal, looking at this huge sort of congested cloud just just over the last turn point. I, I ran, I went down, on. I, I radioed down saying, don't you think that's a little bit big? And then at a moment, you know, lightning broke and oh, hell broke this. we had the whole competition in the air, everyone trying to get down. Of course, the gust front came through and everything was getting hoovered up. And I was just with my back to the village, full bar so we wouldn't get blown into it. And then the whole gliders went pieces and um, went full. It went completely behind me and I was falling out of the sky from about a hundred meters. And then by, it wasn't going to recover, but by pure luck, by pure luck, the glider went one side of the cable, this it was telephone cable. And I went the other side of it. So it kind of bungee jumped, bungeed <laughs> me down onto the ground quite safely. Oh you know, from having God. No glider. I just swung down under these cables and, uh, Oh, actually, I did take the tip of my glove off because I kind of I flashed past the concrete post, and it just took it broke my it broke my fingernail. So that was it. That broken fingernail, oh which wasn't God. bad, really. Steve, where was and, that? Uh, it was currently I, I, that was in a uh, cornet solo in in, in Italy. In, was that uh, the one that Belcourt it, threw place, his?
0: Th- this sounds really familiar. Was that the one that Belcourt threw his reserve and then got pasted on the fence?
1: may want to be lots of people my wife she was spiraling she was purring my wife she was spiraling down trying to get, get down and she ended up in the lake and had to swim ashore as did jill hartley another scottish woman loads of people were slapping into the ground luckily a lot of boggy ground around the lakes there and um yeah, it was nine, nine I, people would have thought it may have been bill did that yeah i, I think, think in it was because it sounds exactly like happens. that
0: it was he was, he was real low and, you know, just getting smacked all over the place in the gust front and, you know, then and, and through, and then his reserve was on one side of the fence and it was blowing so hard, but he was on the other side of the fence. So you'd imagine like a chain link fence. So it just basically sucked him up into the fence. <laughs> And he and he, it was blowing so hard that it ended up just breaking the fence over. You know, it was, he was just kind of pasted against this thing, and I guess there were some Italians out on their porch looking on with interest. And uh, it's quite a funny story.
1: No, it was, it was kind of it was, it was remarkable that nobody was seriously hurt. Well, nobody was hurt. You know, everyone got down. So many people had big stories to tell and uh, but no one was hurt and uh, you know I took I lost half the lines on my glider but uh, hey that was nothing compared to what could have happened and of course you know, then 2009 I had my big accident my proper accident which really hurt me Um but up until then you know I the usual sprained angles and things like that but Paragliding had been reasonably nice to me Um but there you go what can you say to people yeah yeah you know, yeah, you're not invincible. You know, take it easy, and don't you know, fly something within your capabilities.
0: Yeah, you know, which I am doing I mean, now. The, we we <laughs> haven't, you know, it's all still. You know, there's there's, I mean, and I was on the I was on the rescue, uh, but we still they haven't really released um, the full full details uh, of QE because they're still trying to figure out exactly what happened. So I, I won't go there at all, but the The real takeaway for for me, and and this this actually came from from Josh Cohn, and he's always very thoughtful about these kind of things. But it was just a very good reminder of the fact that we and our gear have limits, and we need to be aware of them. Um, and and not we don't know yet the the gear side of of Kiwis, but it's you know it, what I do know is that you know he was definitely he'd been a little bit tired. He was kind of tired down in Texas. He was tired the weekend before I saw him in, in, in Nevada, you know, it's a
1: huge
0: air place and very remote, but very much like the Sierras, the listeners that have flown out in the Owens, you know, it's kind of like that. And no, so you just have to be, I think you just have to be mindful of every day where you are, you know, and I think with Kiwi, it was, he, he definitely wasn't as, robustly um you know energetic as i've seen him in the past you know i think he was definitely you know he he'd just gotten his book published and you know there's probably just a lot of things going on in his life where um you know maybe sometimes it's okay for flying to be a distraction but not always
1: yeah yeah he was um was it 55 you know i think yeah. most you've got to appreciate now as you get your reflexes are no longer what they were as you get older and um, you know, I certainly, uh, I know, you know, I plateaued years ago and I think I'm going down in skills, really. And I certainly know that my, um, I'm certainly not as brave as I was. And, I'm, and for that reason, I'm not, I'm not prepared to try and um, fly things which are beyond my capability. I try my hardest to keep out of situations which might stretch me. And, um, but of yeah. course, you know, every now and again, the thing with paragliding is that you do end up in those circumstances. The weather can change or you you might get low in a place you didn't expect it to be low or the landings aren't so good. So you know, we're often presented with circumstances which might be just beyond our limits. And sometimes you know, luck's in our favour, but often it's not. And uh, the, the, what you need to do is to put things, you know, stack the odds in your favour by flying you know, with the right equipment, getting the right skill sets, you know. Doing SIVs, doing all those things that you need to do, which can be a little bit irksome, time constraints and finance. But uh, you know, it is, it is, it is an extraordinarily dangerous sport that we do. You know, it's very fulfilling, very enjoyable, but you know, it's um, you know, it's, you've got to be. It's it's the consequences of uh, making just a, you know a humdrum mistake. You know, when you're having a bad day, can be uh, you know, long lasting, very very painful or
0: fatal. That's a great place to end. I think Steve had some very good advice there uh, at the end, but thank you for sharing all that. You were kind of rolling on some stories there. I think we need to tap back into some more of those at some point. <laughs> those, are, those are, those are, terrific, but thanks for sharing the, you know, the 2011 comp. I don't know that everybody's heard the full story there. So it was great. It was great to hear that. And Thank you for sharing your life of flight with us. It's been uh, many, many decades here, and I hope there's many more to come.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Cool. Um, yeah, I just, I just noticed we're at ninety minutes in, so I wanted the, but that that was a really good spot to end. Although we don't need to end. If you have any anything else to add or throw in that you want to, let's do it now and we'll slide it in. I just thought I, I wanted to end on that one because that was that was some really good. That was a great. Yeah. That was a great natural uh, end.
1: No, I think we covered. Um... Hey, we've a lot. We've been—I think we've been, yeah, an hour and a half or so. We've been at it, I think. So yeah, well, that's um, <laughs> fine by me. Yeah, yeah.
0: cool. Hey, how did how did you so what, break I, your I, arm? Uh, how how did that accident go? What happened?
1: Oh, it was so. It was um. Yeah, you know, I live a, a few caves k- from the village in a log house, and I've got a few nearby lannies fields, which are quite tight, but they're okay, and um. It was a day when uh, all the gliders, all the my clients, had just had landed, and it was it was becoming stormy. And I thought, well, rather than land or land in my own house and go have a coffee, you know, see the dogs, da da da, and um, I just set out to go into this field I flown into hundreds of times, and of course because of the storms, which were just you know the the winds, is, the winds are a little bit squirrely. And it was a different approach than all. And I was I just tried to lose a bit of height by doing a steep turn I was flying a Mantra Four, I think it was at the time, and I just tip stalled in you know, didn't I? And uh so I had to recover and let the little thing dived a bit. By then I kinda of dived into an area which is you now my house is sort of out in the boonies, but there's some other houses nearby and I was sort of flying over someone's house with cables and things and I got near the road and I was sort of he- I was sort of boxing by cables. So I had to sort of Rather than hit the cable, maybe at neck height uh, or, or hit it, I just had to force-stall the glider, you know, over the road at about, I think, probably about 10 metres or something like that. Oh. So I just force it down onto concrete, which was, you know, I had to hold it you know, so it wouldn't spin. I had, to hold, I had my hands down and I went in heavily and I just, my body collapsed and I kind of had my hands down to stop it spinning I think. Um, all the force went through my right arm and it just shattered it it was an open fracture and uh i lost the elbow i lost the inter- inter- osteo membrane which is the bit which the membrane which goes between the uh, cubital and the radius and that never heals so i've lost the rotation in the in the iron there and i'd already that's the iron, same arm i crashed on the glider back in the day and also i had two other accidents on skateboards when i was a kid and so that iron had been just taking the pounding over the years and i, I took some tendons out on the shoulder so yeah it was all focused on the on the eye but it was a really bad injury and so uh and it sectioned lots of nerves so i had lots of parasympathetic pain which you know it only went away that went away a couple of years ago and it's still shit but um it was just yeah, one of those accidents an embarrassing accident you know it, it was nothing, nothing heroic about it you know <laughs> it was one of those ones which you wouldn't uh, it was like it was like, you know, I always think I'd hate to die coastal soaring. You know, that would be embarrassing. You know, mm. It's like one of those accidents where, Christ, you know, trying to land on a reasonably okay day near your house, cock it up because you're you know, tips to the glider. And uh, But, yeah, you know, it was it was a hard one. And, uh, you know, it was kind of on top of all that emotional shit that I had from the world. And, uh, yeah, it wasn't in a good place for quite a few years, really. But luckily I was still able to fly, you know, the next, the next season, you know, I had, it was painful, at least flying, you know, I was able to fly and able to still work. And uh, so it could have been worse. But, uh, does my your wife, wife still fly? I thought <laughs> at the time, uh, she does, but not very much now. She, um, uh, she was a Spanish champion about 98, I think it was, but she had a cancer diagnosis about uh, three, four years ago. So that was a big setback for her. And, of course, mm. also, we, we've got kids who are t- in their teens. And, of course, once the kids came through, you know, then she was pretty much stopped. She started again. She, she's been doing – she's done a few flights this year, you know, just evening evening mm. stuff, very mm. gentle. But she hasn't got the fire in it. You know, she was to be really keen, but, you know. She's uh, managed to keep the habit. I say so she's got off the uh, – I'm, I'm still – unfortunately, I'm still a little bit – hooked up on the drug but you know not some (laughs) not so much as i was yeah but uh, obviously you are as well although you are well you've got a different sort of you're very much an extreme are you going to be doing is there going to be an next alps next year
0: yeah yeah i've signed up for one more i really didn't think i was going to after the last race I, i you know the The 2015 and the 2017, I mean, I was already thinking about the next one during the race. You know, it was just like, God, this, this is just so fun. This is so outrageous. And I love my team Hmm. And, and, you know, it was real obvious. And after 2019, um, it wasn't nearly as obvious. Partly it was, it was a number of things, you know, I didn't like all the waypoints. I thought that was kind of ridiculous. we basically all just kind of followed each other around. It wasn't, you just couldn't make moves like you could earlier. And then Mm. the other just big reality was, you know, obviously I'm not getting any younger, but it's the, the, the pace is just getting outrageous and, you know, it, it, you know, it was real obvious to me that it wouldn't matter how much I trained. I just, you know, I'm always pretty fast on the ground, especially for the way I'm built. Like I'm not built like a Gushelbauer. I'm not tall and lanky and like a marathon runner, you know, I'm kind of like a Wombat and, uh, <clears throat> and I'm older and I've got terrible knees, you know, but I, I can, I can maintain very good speed, but it was, let me get the point. The the point was like in, in 2019, I, I basically had the best race I've ever had in terms of just everything, you know, the team and the strategy and the training and the physical prep. And we just, you know, we'd kind of figured it out and yet it was still just, just kind of middle of the pack. You know, I, I I placed 12th and back Mm -hmm. in 2015, it was, it was eighth. And that, I guess that gave me this like false hope that, oh, well, you know, if I work really hard at this, I could, you know, so anyway, I got wrapped up in the numbers rather than just the awesomeness of it because it is just awesome um yeah but it it was the reality was just like god i you know that these younger guys are just getting better and everything's getting faster and you know it's it's becoming less and less adventure and more and more just crazy pace and um so anyway I, i wasn't as excited coming out of this one to, to do it again. But then of course, you know, you have a year (laughs) thinking about it and pondering it and talking to your team. And because the team, my team that those they're really excited to do it again. It it is, it is just really fun. So I'm trying to figure out, you know, how to separate more from like attainment and more just, uh, just the process. And so In in a sense, I have quite different goals going into this one, which may end up being quite freeing and, you know, allow me to do even better in the end. But I'm trying not to have that, you know, it's one thing to say, well, I don't care about the results, but I'm, you know, I'm trying to have that not be nearly as important, I guess is what I'm saying. So, you know, I'll still train really hard and I think we'll still have a lot of fun. I I, honestly, I don't know that we're going to get to go do it. You know, I I think they'll have the race, but I'm not sure. Mm. Uh, i'm not, then not very confident americans are going to be able to even travel over there by then but we'll see um you know hopefully yeah but it's uh, a shame it Doesn't I
1: mean, it's just the, such a remarkable thing in uh you know for me as a you know it's a shame it has it, it's like one of the ultimate sporting events and which you can do i think you know in, in but yeah, it hasn't got the media interest, has it really? Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. just like many things, you know, paragliding on the whole,
0: mm-hmm.
1: people don't appreciate it, you know. That is such a fantastic adventure. This whole example thing, and is, I mean, well, they are doing a lot better as far as sponsorship than most events, but True. um, it's you know, if you compare it to like motor car racing, which is so tedious. Yeah. And it's got all that exposure, <laughs> and then you know you've got this real real adventure, you know, with like the complexities, tactics, you know, spectacle, and nobody's interested, you know. <laughs> yeah, and risk get, and all yeah. these.
0: Th- I mean, you know, when you think about just like ultra thons, I-, I always describe it to people like, well, think think ultrathon every day, but for 12 days, but you're carrying your pack and you're flying a ton in often really dicey conditions, yeah. it, it, but they still don't really get it. I mean, that's the, that's the thing. It's just, it's not relatable. It's not golf. You know, <laughs> people can't relate to it, I guess. So they, yeah. so don't, it's yeah. just, but, but it is, you know, uh, I can't even remember what your, your, your question was. Oh, I, I mean, I'm definitely, you know, so I, I just, I have a little girl, she's three, uh, and You know, I, I am definitely, I'm a little concerned actually going into this one because I'm noticing that I, you know, I'm, you know, there's just physical things. Like my vision is not, you know, what it was even two years ago. My vision's going, you know, I'll be 49 in this next one. And you do start to have a much different approach to risk. And, you know, I, I think that that will hopefully that will kind of evaporate during the race. Cause you, ju- you get in these weird mind where you, you just, you become very strong in your mind and, during the race and, you know, you've trained for it and you just start really believing in yourself. And, um, I, I, you, I, you, you fly in conditions that I think typically would be pretty nerve wracking and you just got it. And I, and I don't, yeah, I don't, I'm not even saying, I don't even think they're more dangerous. It's just, because you really are in the right headspace for it, um, but you know, like your 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 story of even doing the fly on the wall landing, you you get you get in this headspace where you're not going to screw it up. And um, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, but it's still it is wicked dangerous. And so I I I don't know that I maybe I'd be in the same headspace of it without my daughter. I'd still be struggling with that just because that's what happens when you get older, but. Certainly, that my daughter having my daughter has is, is spotlighted it more for me. You know, like, I yeah. really want to come home now these days. And I think you know that does. You know, it's not something like you said. It's not something you're thinking about when you're 20. Yeah,
1: <clears throat> yeah. I mean, there's uh, it's it's a lot of risk that exeat because you're you know you're, you're, I mean, that's well. We didn't speak about it in the talk, but you know that the you know, as a competition pilot, one's or as a mediator, you've got to understand that people's uh, acceptance of risk, or well, the way they fly, changes dramatically when they're put under a, uh, in a competition or environment. You know, they would they start taking these insane risks which they would mm. not normally take, and of course, and for what reason? Because you know, there's no big prize money. There's no. You know, there's only kudos, and at the end of the day, that kudos doesn't go very far because. You know, we often ask this question: okay? Who knows who the world champion is at the moment? You know, or to, you ask that to competition pilots in an event, and there's a lot of head scratching. And uh, so you yeah. saying, "Christ, you know, why do they think that it's worth taking a risk? Because you know, they're not going to be remembered. In fact, they might be remembered for a few weeks if they kill themselves during the event. But you know, taking a risk to win these competitions. is... Is not worth it, but people do, and, uh, and it's just the way that humans are made. You know, you put them in a competition environment, and then people push themselves a little bit more than they should normally. Really, that's um, can be a problem. So,
0: yeah, that, I, that's a good one. I, I mean, uh, that it would have been a good one to talk about that. Although we are now, I'm still recording, so we can we we can maybe throw that in. Well, that's an interesting one, isn't it? isn't it? Because it's it's a real uh, we. You know, we've all heard that a bunch of times like hey there's there's no there's nothing there's not even glory <laughs> let alone money you know literally like you said yeah. you know most people will most people in the sport have no idea who won the worlds last year and uh and yeah. no one cares and so you yeah you have this real problem with ego because it does it does really happen it, you know in, in in the in the xops mm-hmm. it happens all the time and and that's I think a different driver for sure. A lot of that's hmm. just, you know, the lack of wanting to walk more. And I mean, it's, <laughs> there's a lot of things that yeah. that really do make you do silly stuff over and over again. But like I said, it's, I mean, and I'm, this, I'm toying with saying something really stupid and dangerous here, but there haven't been, you know, there's been a lot of accidents in the x but there hasn't been the, the ultimate accident there. And I think that's just because the, you know, you, you do, like I said, you, you know, you do train a lot for it. So the people are naturally resilient, you know, they're, they're able to bounce better. And, but you just, you just get in this funny frame of mind that I very often can't get in when I'm just normally flying. And, uh, and I think when we go to competitions, we're, we're offloading even more responsibility. You know, we're not even paying attention to the weather. We're just, I think we're often uh, really then flying on ego and, 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 desire for mm. a podium or something that is really not why we should be doing it.
1: Yeah, well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of herd instinct as well, isn't there, where people are flying. You, know, you have to be very, very careful with the task design, because I think anyone who's thrown a few comps will realize it. At some stage, most people have stories of, oh, my God, you know, we, we had to fly into this turn point, which was in this valley, in the road turn, we were risking our lives to complete the course. And, um, they didn't cancel the task, so we had to do this and they, you often hear this story especially- oh, yeah. in the early days when they had to have when there's no GPSs and they had to use a building or something, and you are sending people into quite conflicting spaces and uh you know and that does happened, so you have to be really careful as a meet director or as on the anyone on the task committee to make sure that. You know, you've designed a task which isn't going to be in any way problematic, and then you've got to realize that you know, if it is problematic, these guys, on the whole, they're going to—they're not thinking rationally, and they're going to do it anyway. Right. And uh, you right. know, there's many cases where you—you're know, flying on thinking, you know, I've done it in a company. I remember flying in uh, with Mark Watts at this uh, event, where we did have a fatality. It was in uh, it was a really windy day when the mistral was blowing in in France at Saint Andre, but we went to Saint Vincent, which is a a place where you can fly just about and there's a little magic bubble there yeah
0: no, which know, is not know, so windy yeah.
1: but they well they set the task you know further down the dormus uh range out of the magic bubble and uh i was flying along you know recently up at the front with Mike watts and i thought okay well that doesn't matter when we get to the end of this valley you know we're not going to be stupid enough to carry on into the real mountains we're just going to land there we're all at the same points and then we got there and <clears throat> mark went in and oh shit okay we'll all go in and uh, we ended up you know having to land you know in this in an unpleasant place further than the mountains because coming back into the howling wind was impossible and people one person who tried it was killed and um it was just shit a very very bad task setting and of course you know if we'd have had a normal sensible um if we'd have rationalized it a little bit better we'd have just landed um in a nice safe easy place yeah. Was. It was, nobody got any points, somebody died, and it was then fantastic. Maybe in the in the exile, because you're not constrained by too many turn points, um, and you are flying more on your own, and you you have to sort of make, you probably make, you have to make a lot more decisions on your own rather than just following the herd, then perhaps it is safer. Uh, yeah, a, I think so. As a competition I mean, format.
0: Yeah, and, and you have this... Yeah. You, you do have more of a longevity approach to it all. It's all, it, you know, you, you're never thinking about Monaco during the race. You're just thinking about the next move, the next move, the next move. And I, I think it is about, uh, you know, I mean, you recognize if you, if you wreck yourself or, you know, even just roll an ankle, your, your race is over, you know? So I, I think there is a, yeah. there is a bit of, there is a bit more of a preservation side of it, but then there's also just I mean, there's been, we were laughing the other day, telling stories about it. There's just so many times where you do things that, you know, I, I can still stand by them (laughs) now going, I, you know, I, I really have felt like I haven't done anything that risky during the race, but if you were an outsider looking at some of the things I've done, you'd go, or what are you, you're, you're crazy then if you're, you're telling yourself a complete lie. But like I said, you, you just get in this frame of mind where, uh, you know, launching cross and forty k an hour is totally reasonable. You know, you've trained for it. You've got that move, but mm. it's not really that reasonable. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just, it's. Uh, and, I mean, and the other one is just. How many times I've flown down a canyon that had nowhere to land, you know, just in my mind, well, it's the X-Ops. I have to keep going. There will be a place to land. There always has been. And there, and, and one time there wasn't. I landed in the trees <laughs> and, and balled up my wing and packed it and kept going. And it, it didn't even slow me down. It was, just, you know, whereas usually that'd be kind of a high, you know, it'd be a high adrenaline event, just landing in the trees. <laughs> it was just funny. You just, yeah, you just, you'd get in a weird, you a very, very cool it's a, it it. i think that's the addiction uh, part of it i mean i think a, a bigger part of the addiction is like you said it is a drug and it's a very very intense drug for 12 days you know you're basically in flow for 12 days straight and, and there's not that many ways to get there and so i, I think that's why we're all addicted to flying because yeah. we like that flow channel state and the x is like a you know you're you're it's a springboard into that state, that and then it, you just get to stay there the whole time.
1: <laughs> mm. And that, you know, going on to that you know, risk taking, there's a perfect example that that um, World Championships in <clears throat> uh, Sierra Nevada in, in Granada in, in the year 2000, where where Kiwi did the article on. I think it was a lot, one of the last last days. We had an awful forecast. I think it was blowing around seventy eight 80 Ks an hour, just 500 meters above the tops and um we were up on the sea station and uh it was just awfully windy and um and the, the cast was going to be cancelled but the spanish they thought they'd have a bit of fun because um so they went ahead and said and they started doing the briefing all right, and saying okay this, these are the conditions you know but we we just want you all to stay you know just try and stay low today you know it shouldn't be too turbulent of course and we don't want you to go to the valleys because it's blowing 100 kilometers an hour in the valleys and um and they did it just a, a straight-faced task, um, task briefing. And of course, there were some people going, "These these Sp- Spanish guys are they're crazy, they're trying to kill us." And but they were all, they were taking their notes. And then I think one of the Swiss guys got up. He just this, this is disgusting. you can't do this. And, but the Spanish, the director, it, was, it was a joke, you know. But they just carried on through. It said, oh, you know, "You'll be okay, you know." And um, and people were getting really angry, you know, really uptight. And of course, they should be because you know it was. Uh, it was launchable at the launch there because we're in the lee, but it was blur- it was hounding Gale just above. But, you know, those people, you know, it was a joke. And everyone thought, well, we might die doing this, but that was the task. And then <laughs> guys started getting their gear ready, right? You know? <laughs> and yeah. And of course, then they know, we're only joking, you know, it goes, aha, very funny. But, you know, that was an illustration of the fact that, you know, people are, they think People will do it. This is extraordinarily dangerous. This is beyond anyone's capabilities. But, oh, okay, well, if other people will do it. I better get ready as well. And, yeah, crazy.
0: <laughs> I hadn't heard that one. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Steve, this is a real honor. uh, 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 We'll have to do this uh, in in person someday soon. I'd I'd love to fly with you when all this COVID is behind us. We put this awful year in our rear rear, rear, view and go flying together. But thank you for your terrific illustrations. And uh, thank you for giving so much to this sport over the last 30-something years. Um, uh, Thanks, man. I appreciate it.
1: No worries. Well, hope, hopefully you'll be recovering very quickly from your uh, COVID experience and uh,
0: I wish you well. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's not had a big deal, so i get through it. Cheers, bud. Talk to you soon. Okay. All
1: right. Bye
0: If you find the cloud-based mayhem valuable, you can support it in a lot of different ways. You can give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or however you get your podcast. That goes a long ways and helps spread the word. You can blog about it on your own website or share it on social media. You can talk about it on the way up to launch with your pilot friends. I know a lot of interesting conversations have happened that way. And, of course, you can support us financially. This show does take a lot of time, a lot of editing, a lot of storage and music and all kinds of behind-the-scenes cost. So if you can support us financially, all we've ever asked for is a buck a show. And you can do that through a one-time donation through PayPal, or you can set up a subscription service that charges you for each show that comes out. We put a new show out every two weeks. So, for example, if you did a buck a show, and every two weeks, it'd be about $25 a year. So way cheaper than a magazine subscription, and it makes all of this possible. I do not want to fund this show with advertising or sponsors. We get asked about that. Uh, Pretty frequently, but for a whole bunch of different reasons, which I've said many times on the show, I don't want to do that. I don't like having that stuff at the front of the show. And I also want you to know that these are authentic conversations with real people. And these are just our opinions, but our opinions are not being skewed by sponsors or advertising dollars. I think that's a pretty toxic business model. So I hope you dig that. you can support us. If you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com, you can find the places to support. You can do it through patreon.com forward slash mayhem. If you want a recurring subscription, you can also do that directly through the website. Uh, we've tried to make it really easy, and that will give you access to all the bonus material, little video casts that we do, and extra little uh, nuggets that we find in conversations that don't make it into the main show, but we feel like you should hear. We don't put any of that behind a paywall. If you can't afford to support us then just let me know and i'll set you up with an account of course that'll be lifetime and hopefully you're being in a position someday to be able to support us but you'll find all that on the website Uh, all of you who have supported us or even joined our newsletter or bought cloud-based mayhem merchandise t-shirts or hats or anything you should be all set up you should have an account and you should be able to access all that bonus material now thank you so much for listening i really appreciate your support and we'll see you on the next show. Thank you.